Hi, Talia Lazarus here and welcome back to I Got Back Up. Today I'm joined by none other than motorsports legend Mark Blundell. A former Formula One star with 61 F1 stars and multiple podium finishes, Mark also conquered the 24 Hours of Le Mans and made his mark in IndyCar. Beyond the track, he's made his mark as a TV personality and motorsport manager as the CEO of MB Partners, but not before his 1996 Rio de Janeiro crash. So, join me for a story of motorsports and reinvention as we drive through the life of Mark Blundell. What we're going to do is we're going to talk all about your story. We're going to talk about kind of your career in motorsports and obviously the crash that you had. Um, one specific one, of course, but what I want to do is I want to go into the past a little bit and I want to talk just, you know, where most resonates with who you are today and everything that's happened. And it is over to you to kind of to start us off somewhere in your own words. Wow. Okay. Um, well, maybe we'll just go back to the beginning because mm -hmm. that's the simplest way to explain it. I didn't start on four wheels. So I started on two wheels uh, in the sport of motocross. Mm -hmm. or some people would call it scrambling. Um, and that's really where the competitive side of me was uh, born from, from being on two wheels, elbow to elbow, with 35 other school kids um, in the lineup of a, uh, of a motocross race, all vying to go into the first corner first, and inevitably some of us would make it or we'd fall off and get ridden over, and uh, you know, you'd come out the other end a little bit worse for wear. But what it did teach me was about being competitive and about understanding of standing your ground and uh, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody in a competitive format. So, you know, great sport, loved it, still love it today. Um, have tried my hands on several occasions of going back on a bike. Don't bounce quite like I used to. I think that's the age thing. Um, <laughs> but still watch it even mm -hmm. uh, now. Uh, really in tune with what's going on in the USA because that's where it's huge. Um, but that's the start, really, of my motorsport career, two wheels rather than four. And then, I mean, first of all, actually, you know, you could always give it a go again if you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> um, during lockdown, I gave it a go and actually uh, went out on a bike for about, I don't know, six minutes. Mm -hmm. Um and my arms pumped up and I felt really like tired and I thought, no, this is not going to happen. So, um, and I also thought about like, if I come off, I'm not going to be able to get to the desk on Monday morning because I've got responsibilities and got staff. So, uh, yeah, I had a sensible tablet. So yeah, I'm not sure that Mark Blundell will be going back onto a motocross circuit soon. <laughs> but actually did it, did it give you any of the same thrill that it did when you were a kid? Um, it did in many ways because speed is really the thrill. Mm. Um, and like everything, it's about me competing against myself in many ways, whether that's on a motorcycle or sitting inside a car. So, yes, from that perspective. Uh, obviously, there was nobody else around, thank God. Um, so didn't really have any of that competitive uh, element of it there. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really – I think most of people in my sort of sector – are all driven off the back of frills and spills. And, uh, you know, in saying that, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to jump out of a plane. That, to me, is just crazy. Um, but I'm quite happy to go into turn one at 160 miles an hour and see who comes out the other end. Well, I guess it's they're different thrills and spills, aren't they? And they are they make people feel very different. And, and jumping out of plane, whereas, you know, driving 100 miles an hour around a, around a corner they are actually very different things. So what was then your transition from two wheels into four? Um, I mean, the two wheels has really driven off the back of location for me because we lived in a rural area. Um, during that period, like as a schoolboy, actually a friend of my late father was uh, really into motor racing. So he took me to my first sort of motor race and I, it was Snetterton, which is East Anglia, so sort of local to us. And gave me really the bug of like, oh, okay, this is something that is me. I can see myself doing this. Bearing in mind that I came from a family of secondhand car dealers. So my dad was a car dealer. So I've been growing up around cars since I was like eight years old. In fact, driving cars since I was eight years old on private property, I may add. Um, I think crashing cars at nine years old. So 
you know, I've, I've got a lot of experience in driving cars. Um, so it really sort of, you know, stemmed from there, the motorsport angle, because we went to racing, got the bug, and I was incredibly fortunate that my dad at that time uh, had got to a point in his life where he just sold a garage and it turned around to me, bearing in mind I wasn't an academic kid, so school for me was like, I just rebelled. I didn't want to go, hated it. Uh, just wanted to do something that I could actually sort of like come away from and feel like rewarded. And he said to me, I'll give you a, a budget to go and run one year of motorsport and get it out of your system. Then you'll be getting a real job and that will be your life. And I kind of went on the basis, okay, I'm not going to get it out of my system. I'm going to really try and make this as my job. And that's really where it stemmed from. Um, yeah, unfortunately for him, and fortunately for me, it worked out in that way. So that was 1984, so it's a long time ago now. So, uh, Formula Ford 1600, which back then was the stepping stone for many Grand Prix drivers in that era. I quite like how your father said, get it out your system, and you actually, you knew you didn't want to get out your system and that you wanted to make it a... Uh... You wanted to make it not just a passion, you wanted to make it everything that you were doing. And I think that that kind of encompasses a lot for people these days trying anything that they think people are like, yeah, go get it out of your system. And they know it's they know it's part of them, but everyone else is get it out of your system. But, you know, it's, it's having the ability to make this thing and this passion into a dream come true. Yeah, I think a lot of people like don't give themselves enough self-credit self-confidence in saying like okay you know i've got the wherewithal and listen it's not always about raw talent it's about actually like streaming that raw talent yeah. into something that is going to enable you to go and do what you feel is right pathway for you um i'm not saying i was the best racing driver in the world but maybe i, I applied myself and yeah. got myself to a stage of saying okay i can compete and then once i started competing also learned a huge amount from some of the best um, and that kind of elevates you to the next step. But it's also, you know, it is an ethic. You've got to get up in the morning. You've got to go and do your training. You've got to go and get your dedication to knocking on doors, trying to find sponsorship. You've got to, you know, engage with people. You're only as good as what you are outside of the car as what you are inside the car. You know, because it, mm -hmm. motorsport per se is like full sort of encasement. It's not just turning up on Sunday afternoon and doing two hours Grand Prix it's actually quite an intense job. And I always say to people that the cockpit of a race car is like my CEO's desk. It was exactly the same fundamentally. Um, so yeah, like anybody, like you say, if you've got a dream, follow it, but it's not just going to happen like magic wand style. You've got to apply yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You have to take action. Um, things can fall into your lap, but they fall into your lap when you've woken up and taken action. Yeah, I think that's a realization of like the opportunities there. Yeah. Whether or not you go take it is down to you. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's no different to me saying, you know, people go, oh, fantastic. You did Formula One, you did Le Mans, you did IndyCar. I said, yeah, I did. I said, but nobody smacked me over the head with a hammer saying you must do it. <laughs> yeah, I did it because I wanted to do it. Mm. Um, and no matter what happened, if you come out the other end of accidents and everything else, it's still your choice. So you make the choice of whether you want to go and, you know, rotate 200 times on Sunday afternoon. Um, don't get me wrong. I got to a point where I was okay at things and I got paid to do it. So very fortunate and uh, incredibly lucky to do something that I loved. But at the end of it all, yeah, it's still a choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then obviously from 1984, what were the, the next steps then? So I had quite a quick transition back in those days. So from 1984, I started in Formula 4 1600, quickly went into Formula 4 2000, which was the next step up. Um, that was 86. And then 87, 88, I was in F3000, which would be the equivalent to F2 these days. And by 1989, I was testing a Williams Formula 1 car. So started 84 no karting or anything like that, just came out the bikes. And by 1989, I'm sitting in the Formula One car going up and down at uh, Abingdon Airfield testing for Williams. Um, and in that period then developed into a professional racing driver. You know, and I turned professional as I'm being paid to drive a racing car. 
So, you know, that's, that's for me is like the encasement of professionalism. Um, and at that point I was driving for Nissan in a world sports car championship, like Le Mans 24 hour. I was employed by Williams as test and reserve driver. And I was also being paid by a Formula 3000 team to go and do F3000. So it all came in, you know, relatively quickly. And I'd say from that time, I've, you know, not now, but uh, up until I kind of stopped going around in circles, I've been paid to do my job, which for me is uh, fantastic. Got there on merit. Um, and that included 61 Grand Prix as a Formula One driver, uh, five years in IndyCar, Le Mans 24 hour win, and several other things that I've sort of put my hand to. How did it feel then when you went from, I mean, what was it, five years from kind of 84 to 89? And how did that feel then to suddenly five years later be sitting in the Formula One car? Um, a little bit surreal because mm -hmm. never really felt that it was an achievable objective. Um, bearing in mind, like, yes, okay, I come from Barnet, North London, Hertfordshire mm -hmm. border, come down the A1 corridor. First family home was actually a static home, mobile home, and then went then to uh, a council estate in uh, Letcher of Garden City. And sort of like reflection of that and not being the most academic kid in the world. I mean, I have no exams to my name whatsoever. So I've never even sat an exam at that, uh, that level. To then sort of look back and say, right, I'm now sitting in the Grand Prix car on a global stage as an international sports person. Um, yes, yeah, slightly, as I say, surreal. So, <laughs> um, but never doubted that I had the ability to get there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and one sort of side, it was like, okay, it's that's a different world for what I'm understanding and what I've ever been in, enclosed in. But at the same time. I believe in myself and I think I can get there. And if I get there on merit, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then obviously when it comes into motorsports, it comes into, you know, drivers have their, they either watch their fair share of crashes or they are involved in their fair share of crashes. Um, and obviously, you know, people can have one to quite a few. I want to talk to you about yours and kind of how that, how, first of all, the experience of being in it, because obviously not a lot of us you know, are ever going to go through that kind of thing. And then kind of the aftermath of it. Um, so I think you're probably reflecting on the accident I had in Rio de Janeiro in IndyCar in uh, 1996, which, um, yeah, without a doubt was the biggest accident of my career. Um, without a doubt, one of the biggest accidents you'll probably see that someone to a degree walks away. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, racing drivers will crash. Law of averages. You know, it's, it's, it's not a case that they won't, they will. Whether it's self-induced because they've gone over the edge, whether it's technical failure, or whether mm -hmm. it's being caught up in somebody else's accident, um, they will have accidents. So, Again, you, you factor that in. Yeah, we've all got self-preservation built in, but part of the buzz, again, is like that little risk that you take and can you get to the edge of the envelope and come back. This accident actually was slightly different in that it was technical failure. So mm -hmm. the car failed on me. Um, and the be all and end all of it is I hit a concrete wall uh, at 198 miles an hour. So that actually generated 122 G impact. Um, and purely down to the fact that I had no brakes. I hit the brake pedal, brake pedal went to the bulkhead. The, uh, the disc spell had actually cracked and um, basically didn't have any braking force there because there was no, no pad and caliper and disconnection to actually uh, enforce the brakes. And then the rest of the hydraulic system fails. Um, and Cultivated me basically striking the wall at 198 miles an hour. So it, yeah, in the one period of my career at that stage, that was the time that actually I thought that's it, I'm done. Because I pretty much knew that striking concrete at that speed meant that I wasn't going to come out the other end. So when people say that things slow down, um, and I've been in accidents where they slow down, this one didn't. It, it was 
what you see on TV, if you want to ever watch it on YouTube or something, was exactly the same feelings that I had. Um, and to this day, I remember it and I resonate with it because I never got knocked out. So as I've said to people before, I should have been a heavyweight boxer. I probably would have been one of the best because if that could, couldn't knock me out, I don't think any human could knock me out. Um, but it was a, a huge accident um, to the point where many people down pit lane were under the impression that I was dead because that was the, the force of it, the impact. Even the chief designer who built that car was in a stressful situation himself because he just didn't know the car would withstand those forces. And to give you some indication, like the monocoque that I was sitting in ended up being two, uh, two inches narrower than what it was manufactured. And that was from the secondary impact when it hit the wall sideways after the frontal impact at first. And the seat belts were over five inches longer than what they were manufactured from the weight of my body going forward on impact. Um, and I've still got the remains of that car, actually, which is kind of funny. Um, it's got some flowers in it. It's like a, like a pot and shed, but it's a good reminder of what happened, what, you know, what could have happened and actually being around to talk about it today. Um, yeah, uh, it did hit hard. It was physically, uh, not an easy one to deal with because of so many, uh, complications in terms of, I, I ended up having, I didn't know at the time because the Brazilian, uh, medical facilities at the circuit were non-existent and even that hospital was uh, very poor in terms of checks so it wasn't until I returned to the UK after I checked myself out of hospital actually that I found out I had a, a blood clot on the brain uh, which talking to the neurosurgeon after being diagnosed with that he said I'm incredibly lucky because it should never have flown in a pressured environment and an aeroplane um, I had right foot was fractured in several places. My knees looked like basketballs and, and bigger issues where my lungs and ribs collided and stripped all the cartilage muscle off the sternum. So internally, my body was in a bit of a mess. And actually I was um, okay after the accident in terms of, I think adrenaline took over. I was actually coherent in the point that I told the safety team that came to, you know, get me out of the car and look after me that and the marshals that I uh, had that incident with the brakes and please tell my teammate and tell the team that I had brake failure. And bizarrely, he had brake failure 10 laps later when they restarted the race. So he was fortunate because it happened to him on the straight because he got checked up by a guy called Emerson Fittipaldi and that stopped him from going into the wall. Um, and I actually did a TV interview as well after the accident. And if you see the footage, my pupils are like, you know, on stems. But actually, a few hours later, going into the evening, my body shut down. So human uh, inputs uh, took over, knowing that my body was in a bit of a mess and kind of closed me down and rushed me to the hospital. And then I spent 48 hours there before checking out. But I think the biggest issue with that was the psychology side, trying to understand what I said earlier about choices. Did I want to go back? Did I want to go and put myself at risk? Did I want to have family that were worried about me? You know, responsibility of uh, being a father. Uh, all of those things, all of those elements were swirling around in my head, along with all the physical side. I think when you're talking about something like that, that is one of the, that is always one of the most interesting questions is as a driver, and I always find it so fascinating as a driver, how do you get back into a car? You know, whether you're watching an accident or you are in your own accident, how do you get back into a car afterwards? So I was out of a car for just under seven weeks, which again was way uh, too short a period to be outside of the car. I had to go back because of the pressures of motorsport <clears throat> at that level. I had another driver that had taken my seat to drive the races that I couldn't do at that point. And I needed to get him back out of the car because it was my drive. It was my seat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I made a, 
like fast track recovery to a point where I felt I was good enough to go back, but actually medically I probably wasn't by a long shot. Um, and my first time back in a race car was actually my first ever test on an oval race circuit in America, in IndyCar racing, where we do these very high speed ovals. And I went to Michigan Speedway. And you have to bear in mind, it's like two miles, 18 degrees of banking, and top speeds back then in our generation of cars were topping 248, 250 miles an hour. And I'd never been at that speed. I'd never been on an oval and a completely different discipline of driving. So I rolled out after having this accident in Brazil, went out on the circuit and started circulating. It was all a bit strange and weird for many, many reasons, as you'd expect. And I got up to about 200 miles an hour. And uh, I came back in again to the team and like said, like, the car feels horrible. I mean, it just feels scary. And the guy's like, well, it will because you're only doing 200. You know, you need to be up in the 225s, 230s to stabilize the car because that's where it's efficient aerodynamically. And I said, okay, guys, I need some time out because my head just wasn't processing. Um, and I remember that day just jumping in my rental car, which I said to the guys, and I said, basically, like, guys, if I come back, I'm going to carry on. If I don't come back, I'm done. And that was the decision I had to make. I went for about an hour and a half, drove off, and literally just drove and just kept driving in the rental car and kept mulling it over, mulling it over. And I got to the point of a journey and going, right, no, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I can do this again. And I just had to reset, clear everything out, turn the car around, went back to the circuit, jumped in the car, got back in it, got up to speed. That was it. Put it in the box in the back of my mind. Carried on doing a job that I was there to do. Um, yeah, it, it's not an easy thing to do. Anybody who's been in an accident, and, and I'm sure you're fully aware of this with your background and what happened with you, coming back out of something and dealing with all of the pressures that at the time you don't even consider because some of those pressures are outside pressures. You know, even the fact, you know, your parents saying like, uh, what are you doing? You don't need to go and do that again. You know, like no one wants to see you hurt or are you crazy? Or it's like, no, it's, that's why, that's why I do. That's my passion. Yeah. Um, I'd be a far more unhappier person if I'm not doing it than I would if I was doing it. So, you know, I got, I'm just going to make sure that I'm at one with it. And, uh, I think there's a lot of things that go on and a lot of self-doubt. And I think that's part of the next generation of, you know, building yourself back up again. And actually, once you've been through something like that, I think your outlook on life actually has a change as well in many ways. Yeah. And I mean, it is an interesting one when it is you're going back, you know, going back into something. And if it is, you know, that you're passionate about, because at the end of the day, it's your choice you're the one making the choice. You're the one saying, look, I know what I've done. I know what has happened, but this is the choice. I know this thing, you know, makes me happy or makes me feel a certain way. So this is the choice I'm making. And I assume that's what it's like, you know, obviously being a driver, you know, you're getting back in the car and you know the risks, but it's your choice. Yeah, a hundred percent. But I think sometimes what happens is as well, you know, you have to factor in that, again, even in that period of time when I was doing IndyCar racing, I think we'd already lost two guys, two colleagues on, on track. Across the period of IndyCar when I was there, we'd lost five drivers. You know, I relate to my career full stop from back in 1984 as a teenager, and I think all the way through Grand Prix, sports cars, uh, IndyCar, I think I'm 12 guys that, you know, I knew that lost around me. Um, so again, it's like, yes, there are choices that you make yourself and those choices are made because that's what you want to do. But there's a lot of outside pressures that people like will reflect on and go, you know, why do you need to do it? You know, because they can't quite correlate mm. the, you know, inside of you, what makes you tick. Um, you know, I look at things all the time, like everything's got a risk attached to it. Crossing the road is risky, yeah, but it's like a self-calculation of, right, when do you make the decision to cross? Yeah, if you want to be really risky, you cross in front of a car, but no one's going to do that. 
in the right mind. Yeah. Um, that's, that's life. That's just, mm. you know, that's the thing what, you know, timing is for me is one of the things in life that's just critical past stuff. Yeah. It is what it is, but you know, it's, it's knowing when to do things and when not, and no different to where we are today in our world of business. It's kind of like, right. When do we apply this next generation of, you know, growth in a business? Is it, is it the right thing to do? Do we have the right people? And timing is, is everything. So I, I recall everything and relate back to everything going back to a race circuit. One minute, 28 seconds of that lap. Okay. All right. That's relevant to me now saying, right, what do I do for the next six months of my business plan? Time. Yeah. Timing is everything. And, uh, it's, uh, in for so many different ways. Um, and it's a really interesting concept because a lot of people, a lot of people do resonate with it and a lot of people then don't. Um, and maybe it's something that you learn or you understood more obviously after the crash. And you, know, you mentioned that your outlook changed on life and, you know, I know a lot of mine did after what I went through. So what kind of examples, you know, are there that your outlook did change? I think just the biggest one for me was just don't take life for granted. You know, yeah. just, I mean, everyone just gets up and does what they're doing. And yeah. actually like every day you get up is a bonus, you know, um, and just feel fortunate about it. it's there in front of you. So go grasp it and, and maximize it. Um, of course, everything isn't rosy and everybody has issues and we all have our stresses and strains, you know, that's, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, and who you are or whatever the case may be, but it's still about your approach to life and, you know, how you want to go and, you know, fight the stresses and strains or, you know, maximize what's in front of you. So that's really it. It's just like, don't take it for granted. It's too precious and it's too short. You know, and listen, I'm at an age now where I'm at a point in life where people around me are no longer with me, you know, whether that's family or friends and, and those are also times when you start to reflect. And I don't want to be doom and gloom and morbid, but I'm just saying, you know, it is what it is. Um, so it's even a case of looking forward and going, right, you know, what have I still got on my to-do list? You know, what is there? What is there that I want to really go and do that I can sign off and say, yeah, that was great. Maybe I'd do it and I don't enjoy it, but at least I did it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And it's saying yes to the opportunities that, you know, maybe the past you or there's a version of you inside which is too scared. And at the end of the day, if you're not going to do it and you're going to regret it in however many years or maybe the next day, you know, if there's a part of you that says do it, you have to do it. Um, you know, the cliche of, you know, you never know what can happen every day. You could get hit by a bus. I like to say that one out loud to quite a few people because, I mean, I did. I hit a bus. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I actually say that to people. I'm like, no, I, I lived through that one. <laughs> I did it. But that's my point is you really don't know how every day is going to go. And I think that's what I learned from my accident as well. It's okay. Well, this is where I am today. Do I want to do this today? Or do I want to try and wait for a right time? Who knows when the right time will be? It is it's exactly right. There's no handbook. There's, there's nothing there that, you know, we can't go and all buy something off the shelf or download it and go, oh, this is the way that you live your life today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because we're all like spinning around on the universe and it's kind of like it can throw things up, you know. Um, and I think it's about adapting, but it's also about no different as well. It's also about understanding yourself and understanding what makes you tick. And, and you know, for me, I'm at a point where it's like you can't buy time. so. Yeah. Because I can't buy that commodity, I want to make sure that I use it as best I can. You know, and that's that's something that really like hits home with me. So, whatever the case may be, there's certain things I go, no, I'm not going to do that because it's going to spend that much time there. And actually, I'd rather use my time doing this. Yeah. Um, and whether that's in my personal life or whether that's in business, it's just an allocation of time now that you know is apportioned and. Again, it's down to my choice where I want to spend it and how I want to spend it. On that then, what's a, what's a pivotal moment in your life that associated with time that had you have not had that outlook on life, you probably wouldn't have done something. And now when you sit back and you look, you can think, 
I did that because of, you know, the person I became or the, you know, what I went through. Is there a moment that you can think of right now on the spot? <laughs> mm. I don't think there is actually, I don't think there's any points that go like, Oh, I, you know, I remember I made that call. I think it's just a case of actually like assessing what's going on during your life at a, at a period and going right, where do I want to choose to drive towards to go forward? Yeah. Because so you like sometimes you need a bit of luck in life sometimes you make them break your own luck but at the same point i think it's also about like being in you know a kind of like zone of like where you want to head you know if you, if you don't want to go somewhere then you steer away from it if you want to go somewhere you can steer into it and go right that's where i'm going to go down and, and during that journey maybe things are going to happen maybe they don't but if you don't drive into it you're never going to know so mm -hmm. you know it's a case of like not really being points in time where I said, oh, I made that call. And yeah, I can relate to that on a race circuit. So yeah, I made that decision and I didn't do this. or I didn't do that. In life, the thing is more of a case of just like, right, where am I going to head towards that is right for me? Yeah. Mm. And, you know, whether that's personally or whether that's business-wise, it's kind of like, I'm not waiting for something to happen. At the same time, I'm maybe going to try and, position myself for it to happen but um you know i'm also not going to force it to happen because i also don't think that's right either um mm -hmm. especially in business you know deals got to be right for both sides and, and if they're forced they're normally short term i think also if it's forced it's maybe not necessarily authentic it's not natural um you're you're you're, you're i mean you're forcing something that maybe isn't meant to be happening to almost try to fit in it's 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 you know, pushing a puzzle piece into a piece where it might not actually meant to be. Hundred percent. I mean, that's you know, it's a good analogy. Um, but I think also, you know, for me, my challenge in life, you know, on my business side, is like really that. It's actually like I've done what I've done in sport, yeah. and you know, and I've also done what I've done in the media world. Did live television for seven and a half years of ITV on the Formula One show. Was never geared up to do it. You know. I'm probably more relatable for the guy who's driving a black cab than what I am for some Formula One sort of buff who knows all the terminology because vocabulary is quite small in terms of explaining things. But it was great and it gave me some insight. And, you know, again, it was like a little bit surreal, right? All of a sudden now I'm on television. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. Never saw that one coming. Um, some of that, again, down to timing. You know, the timing and the opportunity was there and I had to make a choice. I started to knock on doors to go racing or I took the opportunity to go and do a deal with an terrestrial television company and, and, and do that side of things. But, you know, it's, it's all about kind of like transferring some skill sets maybe that you've learned in other areas of your life and then adapting them. And then for me, you know, that's where I am now. It's like setting myself the challenge. Can I now build a business that is for me sustainable and actually like, you know, reflects on the way that, I feel the business should run um, and can I take people on the journey and hopefully those people that are with me develop into being bigger and better people than what they were, you know, in whatever way. But um, ultimately everything that we do has to be fun. Otherwise what's the point? <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. I actually, I'm very appreciating your, uh, I am very appreciative of your vocabulary at the moment, because I actually, just before you said that, I noticed that you had said, you know, steering through life and, and gearing up. And I was, I was actually enjoying it myself. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, maybe he's into motorsports. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so I'm dyslexic as well. So that's something else that is a little bit of a hurdle, but, um, and probably, you know, a reflection on not doing what I did at school, because even in that point of time, they didn't really quite understand it. So, um, yeah, but I'm quite simplistic in my outlook because for me, it shouldn't be complicated. Mm -hmm. um, if I don't understand it, then nothing's going to happen around me. Because so if you can just talk to me in a way which I can sort of like relate to and, and get it, uh, and I'm probably more of a sort of like visualization guy rather than, yeah, 
noughts and crosses and that kind of thing, you know, I's and dots and T's. But uh, at the end of all of it, I think it's a case of just sort of like looking forward. That's my big thing. Yeah, I'm not a big guy on looking back. I will reflect and I will take note. And uh, But, you know, for me, it's like every day, push on. What can we do? Where can mm-hmm. we go forward? Yeah, that's that's what life's all about. Yeah, 100%. And, well, you hit the nail on the head. You said, you know, not looking back too much, but when you do, it's reflecting. So it's reflecting on, you know, where you've come, how far you are now, you know, who you maybe once were, what you were doing, even reflection of maybe a week ago, because so much can happen in a day. Um, so it's not looking back too much, but also doing it sometimes because reflection is so important because when you reflect and you can see how far you are on your journey, um, it's one of those things where we don't realize every day how far we're getting because we, you know, we don't maybe feel or see the surroundings changing or inside changing. But then when we reflect again, whether it was a week, a year, two years, we think, actually, wait a minute, every single day we were doing something, even if we, it was tiny into kind of the person we've become and the changes that have happened in our lives. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know, obviously, as you go through life, there's things that you decide on and you make choices and sometimes they're not always great ones and you can reflect on them being things that you've learned from. There's also ones that you can reflect on and say, right, what a fantastic decision, you know, mm-hmm. and look where we are today off the back of it. So, but for me, it's kind of like, you know, I want to just keep pushing forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to kind of like make sure that, you know, where are we today, but actually like, where can we be in 12 months time? Where can yeah. we be in 36 months time? Um, and, and where do we, uh, again, go back to the, uh, the motorsport puns, but yeah, where do we steer towards next? Yeah. You know, to go and see whether we can, you know, fulfill our objectives. And, um, and also on, on my side of things, and actually like us as a business, the biggest thing on our side is delivery. You know, you're mm-hmm. only counted on your delivery. Yeah. And and if I don't execute that with every part of the business that we've got today, then we're failing. So that's that for me is the most important part. Mm. Just delivery, delivery, delivery. No delivery, no business. Period. Yeah, and then here we are today and you know, saying that you know, I don't want to talk too much about, you know, you don't look too much into the past and here I am going, So tell me about your past. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Tell me everything about your past. Let's go. <laughs> Look back. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, I, as I said to you, I'm at the point where I'm like, I'm really happy that I've done what I've done. Yeah. I'm incredibly proud that I can, you know, sit with my grandchildren and they can have a look at a photograph and, you know, they wouldn't have a clue what it's really all about. But, you know, maybe in another few years' time when they understand it a bit more, they'd be able to relate to their granddad being inside a Grand Prix car as one of those. 20 guys in the world that made it fantastic mm. lovely yeah biggest thing for me is i'm still around to talk about it and um you know that's the upside um incredibly happy that got to where we got really you know lucky and fortunate that I was able to do it but life moves on and uh, yeah. different chapter now uh different focus different challenge but yes yeah, so i still look back and i will still look back and you know, utilize some of my contacts and networks in that sport and that business. And yeah, um, it's never going to go away. It's part of my DNA, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not the be all and end all of my life today. No, of course. And then I do obviously just want to ask you in a moment, you know, a little bit more about what you are doing today in your own words. But there is one more thing I do want to speak to you about then from the past. Um, sorry to bring you back there. Um, and obviously, you know, you were mentioning that, you know, obviously you've had this incredible career and you are obviously here to tell the tale. And unfortunately, I think you said it was 12 people of through your career, you know, aren't, and there's obviously one particular race. And I want to ask you how that was for you being in it, but the race when Ayrton Senna died and you were there on the track kind of. I know it's it's probably a quite a big question in a way, and and it, it's a different kind of thing. But how 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 was that for you being there? Um, so that weekend in particular was a mm-hmm. tough tough weekend for all of us engaged across uh, the Grand Prix. Um, 
and difficult in many ways because we lost Roland Ratzenberger the day before. Uh, Roland, I knew on a personal level. I raced against him as, as teenagers. Um, and, you know, he was on, he come from Austria. He was on a journey to get to the top. And, you know, he was lovely. Well, the sort of like parallels between us. Um, so tough to lose Roland. Uh, been an incident with Rubens Barrichello on the Friday, I think, where the car had had an accident and the tire had gone up into the grandstand. There was also a start line incident with JJ Leto as well at the Grand Prix that day. Um, but of course, yeah, the, the big news also was Senna because Senna was Senna. And even though we'd lost Roland, you know, Roland loss of life really didn't get the exposure globally that what losing Senna did. Um, I, I knew Ayrton, I, I tested, I'd been reserved driver at McLaren, so I worked alongside him um, in 92. Um, you know, as a driver, respectfully, for me, he was a genius behind the wheel. Um, of course, it was a huge loss to the sport. And, you know, but in terms of actually being on the grid that day and the understanding of losing drivers, I would say to you that that's part and parcel of the conditioning of you as a sports person in that arena. Like we reflected on earlier, like choices, you make your choice, like you reflect on, you understand the risk, you know, Roland and Ayatton would have understood the risk. Uh, the others on the grid, including myself, understood the risk. So it's, it sounds a bit weird in a way, like, yes, they had accidents and we lost them, but change the dynamics weren't going to change for us as racing drivers we you know we went on and did the grand prix we were still going to go do what we did and i don't say that with any you know disrespect i say that in that i'm 100 sure that those two individuals that are no longer with us would have been exactly the same mindset as the rest of us that were on the grid yeah and because that's who we are that's what we did that's you know that's that's what made us tick but as a weekend, it was an incredibly difficult one. So probably one of the worst weekends in my motorsport career. Um, and it stemmed, uh, you know, from that stemmed a lot of change, uh, technically and outlook-wise on the sport. And then actually, as we all know, it went on for many years as well in terms of, you know, trying to understand who was at fault and, you know, why it happened. But, you know, ultimately... Yeah, it was a, it was a loss of two great individuals, and I always say to people, read the back of a ticket when you walk into a circuit. It says motorsport is dangerous, and you know it's in big black bold letters, and that applies to everybody, and it is what it is. But yeah, yeah, that's the conditioning side of it. That's the downside of the sport, and that's the downside that you reflect on and still reflect on with not only those guys but other people. Is safe through my career that we've lost. Um, but they were doing what they loved. And that's the thing. And that's the only way that you can think about it. Yeah. And was privileged and fortunate enough to race against them and uh, compete with them. So, yeah, that's, that's the, uh, that's the memories. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And then I am going to go into what you're doing now then. Um, so we're going to talk about the present moment. Uh, so how have you transitioned then from four wheels into a businessman? So I would probably say that I'm a little bit different to some because mm -hmm. all the way through my career to a point, I had a secondary business in the background. Mm -hmm. um, some of that was because of my upbringing, because always considered motorsport. And again, because it was that surreal situation of coming from where I came from and getting to where I got, I always sort of looked at it being a bit fickle could all fall over mm -hmm. tomorrow. So I've kind of always had something going on in the background, whether that's been like property development or selling mobile phones or whatever the case may be. Um, and the business side's always, you know, interested me. It's always been challenge. It's always been something that I've uh, got out of bed for to like, you know, go and sort of work the day and see what we can generate off the back of it. Um, the sports management side, which is sort of the core of our business today, 
was also driven off the back of myself and uh, you know, one of my good friends, Martin Brundle, because we both were at a point in life where we were sitting on the board of directors at the British Racing Drivers Club and looking at these guys that were getting funded by the club to support them in their careers. And we're going, okay, yeah, they've got some good budget there, but let's hope they go spend it wisely. And it was at that point we sort of like looked at each other and said, well, why don't we go and support them and give them a platform and some of our knowledge and, and network to try and help them. And that's where we started the sports management business back then um, with the very precise name of 2MB, you know, uh, Mark Blundell and Martin Brundle, and there was two of us, so we just called it 2MB. 2MB Sports Management. So pretty cheesy, but, you know, it worked for us. Um, and that's really where that kind of came from. And then as things went on, uh, TV side developed more and more for Martin and I was doing my bit and uh, we started to change pathways and actually with the business as it is today which is called Mark Blundell Partners and it's called that for a reason because everything we do for us is around partnerships you know we're, we're really big on making sure that you know our our business partners are exactly that partners of our business and you know we're only as good as them they're only as good as us but the core of it is still sports management with looking after racing drivers, although it's gone on and done a lot more from that point. And we're 10 years in with the business in current state, and it's now doing events and digital marketing. Um, we have a British touring car team on the side that we support. And we have a, a business network program that's got, you know, some really nice names in there. And we're dealing with global brands, you know, again, a little bit surreal would never have thought a kid coming out of school at 16 was ever going to be dealing with you know the ceo of hp or intel or hilton hotels or something like that but you know that's kind of where we are today um and we're fortunate we've got a, a great chairman who's a shareholder a gentleman called theopathetis who people might relate to a dragon's den and uh luckily for me i didn't have to do the pitch to convince him to be a part of the business but, but we are 10 <laughs> years in and, um, yeah, uh, in fact, we have a 10 year anniversary coming up in November. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, but that's my, that's my day job now. Um, still involved in motorsport, still trying to support young drivers and, um, you know, really, uh, rewarding as well. You know, guys like Gary Paffett, Mike Conway, Tom Blumquist. I mean, Mike and Gary have been with me 19 years under management. So. You know, it's kind of cool to be part of that journey with those guys. Um, and we've got some young talent coming up as well. So, yeah, good times. It's all exciting stuff and happy anniversary. Ten, oh, ten years is a good one. <laughs> it's a shame that you didn't do the Dragon's Den pitch because that, that, would have been, uh, that would have been one I would have been watching right after this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would have forgotten our numbers. Our chairman will testify <laughs> to that, so don't worry. <laughs> And then what I want to ask you then is what advice would you give to somebody? And I want to base it on what we were talking about earlier, which is, which is, it's almost like a fear-based thing of opportunities that are arising and saying yes to them, doing them. But there's maybe a part of you that doesn't want to do it, but you know, it's, it's, it's probably best to do it. And a lot of people kind of don't have that resilience or that strength or that, you know what, I'm going to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. What would you say to somebody that's sitting there with you right now and they're asking you the question, what do I do? How do I do it? Listen, I, I think you, you have to have self-belief. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have to believe in yourself before anybody else is going to believe in you. So if you don't put that across and get that across, how do you expect somebody to sort of like buy into your journey? So, you know, you, you got to walk through the door like, this is me. This is what I can do. This is what I can deliver. This is what I think could be beneficial for us. You know, you know, it's not just all about you. It's got to be, you know, it's got to work for the other side in whatever role, whether, you know, that's the next job you want to go for or you want to start your own business or whatever the case may be. The partnership is what it is. But I mean, you really got to be honest with yourself and say, like, if I want to do it, you know, do I want to go and put the hard work and dedication into making it happen? Because mm -hmm. that's, that's what it's, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur, as a, as a small business guy, you know, 
if I stop, business stops. You know, that, that's just the simplicity of it. So, you know, you've got to make sure that you give yourself enough bandwidth to actually say, yep, yeah, I've got the, the dedication and the commitment to make this happen. You know, and I'm like week in, week out. I've got 10, and, 10 staff members relying on, you know, us as a business to support them. And, you know, that becomes a responsibility. So, you know, all of those areas of life you have to consider. But in general, I just say to anyone, believe in yourself, you know, because if you don't, no one's going to believe in you. It's real easy stuff. Yeah. It's, it's real. I mean, it's easy and it's so, it's so true. Uh, people don't realize that just having self-belief, then it just, it, it, it radiates from you. If you really believe in yourself, it can really radiate. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think don't be scared to make mistakes. You know, in business, especially, I'm not saying that I make every decision as a great one, but I make a decision, right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prefer to live my life in that way, knowing that I've called something and that's where we're going to go. Might not work out to be the best decision in the world, but at least we know where we're heading and that's, you know, the pathway that we're on. You know, you, you've got to understand that at points in time, you're going to make decisions that are going to be costly or they're not going to be the best ones in the world. But as long as you learn from them, uh, I'm 57 years old and, and I never stop learning. Every day's a school day. So, you know, for me, it's like, that's just my outlook. I want to try and be a better person tomorrow morning and trying to mm-hmm. achieve something more than what I did today. So, you know, that's, that's the sort of like the basis of where we're at. I know we're quite early in the day, but have you learned anything yet? Or is it maybe going to come towards the afternoon? Uh, I probably learned that our Wi-Fi and our internet broadband should be much better than what it is in our office. But um, yeah, that's that's probably where we're at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. See, and now you know that tomorrow it's like okay, you know, this needs to change. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you were going to answer something like that. <laughs> yeah, we should be making a phone call to BT. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Well, there you go. You've said it now. So you have to make this phone call this afternoon. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, well. Is there anything else that you'd like to share today? No, I think I'm good. Um, to say it's been uh, been great to talk. Um, I think uh, it's good just to have some, you know, like back and forth with someone who's been actually through an experience that uh, can relate to. Um, mm-hmm. I think if anyone's watching, you know, and they've been involved in something and they've come out the other end, like hats off, you know, great job. Um, and if anyone wants to go forward and, uh, you know, understand that there is possibilities, then yeah, uh, two people on screen that have, uh, you know, can testify that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am a, I'm a big, uh, I encourage that anything is possible. Um, and that you, you know, dreams really do come true. Dreams do come true if you work at them. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I agree with you. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. As we wrap up today, Mark's journey reminds us that there is never a right time in life. So don't wait for tomorrow to chase your dreams. Start today. Life is an exhilarating ride. So this week, make it a priority to seize the day and make every moment count. Think about the question... Where do you want to drive your life? So stay tuned for more incredible stories and thank you for joining us. Life is meant to be fun. So until next time, make today the first day of your extraordinary journey and remember that you have the power to get back up.